Hey everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Behold Podcast on the Genre Equality Channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, and this week, uh, we're going to be talking to you about Netflix non-fiction series or movies, uh, mm-hmm. aka documentaries on Netflix. But they clearly, we're focusing on your original production, so we won't be talking yep. about stuff they have syndicated from elsewhere. So it's nothing like, you know, that they've taken a, doc- a nature documentary from Discovery, for example, or stuff mm-hmm. like that. These are Netflix original productions. And the reason why I wanted to get into this particular <laughs> topic this week is the return for season two of a show called Tiger King. Um, for the life of me, like, I can never understand... When I'm talking to, you know, I'm having dinners and stuff like that. I'm talking to my friends about, you know, what are the, what are the Netflix documentaries that you're most into? And I can, yeah. for the life of me, I don't get why the most popular documentaries seem to be uh, number one, sensationalistic, number yeah. two, exploitative, and yeah. at worst, number three, dishonest. I'm mm-hmm. talking about your Tiger Kings of the Worlds, which are sensationalistic. I'm talking yeah. about um, the 3 million and 61 true crime documentaries, which are exploitative. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm talking about the dishonest, unfounded science junk given to you in Seaspiracy. You yeah. know? Um, so on this, the 40th episode of Behold, I thought I would like to give you some alternative options to some of the streamers' best nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to spotlight informative and insightful documentaries. Yeah. Um, that are so much better, more um, full of journalistic integrity, more well thought out, and and case in point, like don't exploit its subjects for profit, mm-hmm. uh, or for you know the titillation of viewers. Like these are not tabloid shows. This is not the new paper or the Daily Mail. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, these are actual journalistic shows. So we'll be talking about two films and two shows. Uh, the first film is a documentary actually gre- uh, greenlit by uh, Michelle and Barack Obama's uh, production company. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is called American Factory. Uh, secondly, we'll be talking about Crip Camp. Uh, thirdly, we'll be talking about a medical documentary following doctors in a New York hospital called Lennox yep. Hill. And fourthly and finally, we'll be talking about The Innocence Files, which follows the work, the noble work of The Innocence Project, which uh, sets about trying to correct wrongs in the American justice system, specifically with regards to uh, people wrongly convicted and wrongly incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's begin with American Factory, man. Uh, I think this, is, this was one of my favorite documentaries or, and or films uh, in general uh, that, that I saw where, when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the premise. In December of 2008, uh, the last truck rolled off the assembly line of the GM plant in Dayton, Ohio. Thousands of people went out of work. They were laid off. Then, a few years later in 2014, a Chinese company reopened the factory and rehired a workforce to make automotive glass. Um, So American Factory is a documentary about that factory's reopening Mm. and the culture clashes that put some bumps in the road, you know. Um, It is directed by veteran documentarians uh, Steve Bogner and Julia Reichardt. Uh, an American Factory is mostly a fly-on-the-wall fashion type of documentary. Um, and it follows the, the closed GM factory in Dayton as it is reopened as Fuyao Glass America, uh, the US branch of a Chinese company that manufactures automotive glass, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. The Daytonians, the local middle-class, working-class Americans who struggled after they were laid off from GM, at first rejoice when they are rehired by the new company. Yeah but soon find that their expectations uh, about labor practices uh, and corporate culture clashes with the new management's uh, ideals uh, are, are very different from, from uh, the, the work culture that they've experienced thus far in America. So the film tra- tracks American and Chinese workers and managers through a years-long period of adjustment um, and it is quite rocky, uh, and at times even a bit humorous. Um, mm-hmm. Differences in American and Chinese ideas about, for example, loyalty to your employer, um, safety <laughs> on the factory floor, um, working overtime, and, yeah. and all that, and much more come to the foreground. And, and when the workers at Fuyao Glass America decide to unionize, trouble is a hit. Not only because the new employers uh, in China are even less... Um, amenable to um, collective bargaining than American corporations are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also because 50% of the workforce, the Chinese workforce, 
uh, do not understand the culture of collective bargaining and its benefits. Yeah. So it's it's a real story of uh, globalization and how it affects the workforce and the working class people stuck in the culture clashes as a different workforces come together. Um, what did you think about uh, American Factory? Oh man. First of all, I'm going to start off by saying like I'm so jaded with with a lot of documentaries in general, right? Uh, and mm-hmm. you've listed a whole bunch of them. I think in particular, Seaspiracy was a huge issue for me. Yep. Uh, and what was the other stupid plant-based athletics one? Game Changers was sure. another one uh, that annoyed me to no end. You know, and of course, after that, finding out that uh, the people who made the documentary are like these big owners pushing their plant-based products. Uh you know, so in general, like a lot of that has been um, an issue for me, and it has been a fair while since I've actually watched non-fiction on Netflix, just mm-hmm. because of that. Um, so very thankful um, to have like kind of like been put on this for by you. Um, mm-hmm. Whenever I'm watching a documentary, my first question is always: is what is the intention of the filmmaker here, right? Because they control the narrative. Just yep. because it's a documentary doesn't mean it doesn't have bias. Doesn't yes. mean that it's being reported in any sort of thru- uh, truth. There is a story here that's being told and it's being told for a purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I bring this up because American Factory in particular surprised me in the way in which it tries to incorporate as many points of view of the people at various levels of this, this company and this factory uh, without necessarily um, providing judgment or mm. some sort of finality, or even analysis necessarily, right, mm. of that. Um, people's experiences as they have experienced it are shared through their own words, and yep. it is captured as such. Uh, and it feels very natural in that sense, right? Um, but, uh, so in the beginning, I was just like, okay, what are they trying to say? Like, what is going on here? Um you know what? What's the point of the documentary? It's it's hard for me to believe that you it you could pick a topic like this and necessarily not be um, biased to one side or the other. Surprisingly, mm-hmm. American Factory does exactly that. Um, you know, at the same time, and I think like in in the first maybe twenty minutes or so, um, as they're just kind of like cycling through the different employees and the chairman and all that and doing all these interviews. Um, I was trying to piece together some sort of like storyline, right? Like, what am I being sold here? Um, and then to my slight disappointment, I realized that oh, you know, there isn't really that. But by that time, I'm so invested in the stories of these people and what exactly is kind of like going on, um, mm-hmm. and being pulled in so many directions at once, right? Because everybody has an opinion on the matter, and everybody's view of it is slightly different, and understandably and reasonably so. Mm-hmm. Um, that at the end I was just like oh man right like so much of the time like when these things are reported in the news or we hear about them or we're doing research about them right like we come to our own kind of conclusion so it's very refreshing to have a, uh, a movie like this like go out on a limb and say look okay like something fascinating is happening here right whether or not it's good or bad and to whom it is good or bad let's not make that judgment let's ask these people what they think and then present it as is and then the audience can make their own judgment for that. Mm-hmm. Um, which I found like incredibly refreshing just because I've taken a long, long break from non-fiction on Netflix just because of the amount of shit that's on it yeah. uh, in recent times. So yes, I really enjoyed American Factory. Uh, it also made me extremely angry. Um, yeah. <clears throat> It's just like the insane kind of like power like these mega corporations have, right? Regardless of whether they're from America or from China, you know? Uh, mm. Very different approaches, same thing. Make as much money as possible. Uh, mm. At the cost of, you know, human lives, right? To varying degrees. Not necessarily death, but still like a major impact on human lives. To see those kind of two worlds kind of clash is fascinating. On the one hand, I'm thinking... Yeah, okay, this is going to be hard, right? Like, culturally, obviously, this is going to be a problem. On the one hand, I'm, like, agreeing, like, nah, they're not being efficient enough, right? Like, the American guys are not being efficient enough. Like, there's Mm -hmm. a reason why China is the number one industrial world power at the moment and will continue to be because, Mm. very honestly, it's a blatant disregard of the many, many human lives within its borders. Um, 
you know. Uh, and on the other hand, like when they talk about like safety and livelihood and all of that, like on the floor and on the ground and about these the 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 quality of life of these people, like I really feel for them at the same time, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a huge kind of pull in both directions, which makes this a fascinating kind of watch to examine where your own kind of like biases lie. Uh, in thinking of like you know, um, in particular in Singapore, when we think about like productive efficiency, right, and and the yeah. whole cult of that that we've built our entire economy on, right, it's very easy to lean into it, like the Chinese thinking of like oh you know like uh you need to be like better, you just need to be better, right? That's essentially like you can do better and you can be and you can sacrifice yourself at the cult of efficiency because you know that's what we are taught to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, this whole dichotomy between the cultures is fascinating uh, as a journey, as an audience, as much as it is fascinating as a kind of, like, fly-on-the-wall examination of people's lives um, that are embroiled within this, this situation. Mm, exactly. I think you hit the nail on the head in that the filmmakers don't frame this story in terms of heroes and villains like yeah. they they don't take cheap shots at blue collar americans who are quote unquote lazier than you know their chinese counterparts or they don't paint the chinese as faceless drones there is a real sympathy for the for the working class here and for the working people um there is you know it's it's a detailed and it's sometimes a darkly comic picture of how things are in the manufacturing sector um, two decades into the 21st century, you know, which has less and less use for human capital, as you mentioned, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and American factory primarily excels in the way that it takes all the people involved in this conflict seriously. I think Bogner and Reichardt's approach, you know, the fly on the wall I just mentioned, just hanging back and watching the action yep. in, in the boardrooms and on the factory floor yep. and eventually on the picket lines. Um, they were granted like real great access here, you know, thanks to public relations representatives who kind of undoubtedly envisioned this film as the happy <laughs> ending that uh, that began their previous... Their previous documentary was called The Last Truck. So yeah. they, they covered the, the closing of the GM factory. Yes. So they they kind of envisioned this uh, sequel as, um, as a sort of a spiritual sequel, a happy ending. Yeah. It turns out, not really, you know. No. Uh, yeah, not, not really <laughs> at all. Like, what, what emerges is... I think a story, a study of, of a possibly unbridgeable cultural divide mm-hmm. where social expectations and the forces of history and politics and corporations have shaped very different ideas of what quote-unquote work is. Yeah. Um, there are actually quite eerie similarities between the two factions. The, the Chinese who have refashioned their old communist puffy anthems and marches into, <laughs> you know, kind of cheery big business propaganda. Mm-hmm. And the Americans who protest outside the plants with union signs and songs that feel like relics of a once-thriving institution that it's, you know, now since weakened. Mm-hmm. But, but while the Chinese, you know, like I, I feel sympathy for them, like they miss their families and cherish their days off as much as their American counterparts do. Mm-hmm. They are also very conditioned yeah. to working these twelve-hour days, seven, uh, you know, seven days a week. Yeah, yeah. You know, like at, at, at right. one at one yeah. at one point, right? Like one of the shift supervisors on the U.S. side commiserates with the Chinese <laughs> counterpart. You know, yeah. complaining that most of his Ohioans are are there to make money, not glass. Yeah. But as American Factory kind of makes clear, the, the same is really true for the Chinese as well. It's just that the Chinese will sleep, you know, six to an apartment. Uh send most of their paychecks back to their spouses and kids at home, mm-hmm. uh, who they're only going to see for two weeks in a year. Yeah. Uh, the native Ohio crew, meanwhile, will just make enough to live on their own, you know, provided they don't have medical mishaps, you know, yeah. God forbid. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone, regardless of their background or values, is working hard. And by telling their stories entertainingly or persuasively, these filmmakers really make a case that all of them deserve better. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And then... I I think kind of like the clincher at the end, right? Where yeah. we're looking at the true future of manufacturing, um, mm-hmm. in in and the forward momentum of human progress is automation, right? And herein lies this incredible dilemma where automation will free humankind in general from the need to do this kind of work, mm-hmm. right? That you know, repetitive and dangerous, and ultimately you know, not fulfilling, right? Uh, not not at all helping you to climb Maslow's hierarchy of needs towards self-actualization, right? Yeah. Um, 
but at the same time, like that transition is going to be violent and it is going to be difficult and it is going to, you know, be the end of many people's kind of livelihoods mm-hmm. as we transition into that and we already are uh, seeing yeah. the effects of that. You know, um, it is it is kind of mind-blowing, right? Um, that American Factory is this very perfect snapshot of a time that we are very quickly leaving behind because of automation. Mm. Um, we aren't going to be seeing this um, attempts at bridging two global powers, um, cultures, uh, and 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 corporations in in this manner anymore. I don't think, um, just because like it, a lot of work will be done by you know machines. Um, yeah, and machines are right culture agnostic in that way. Mm-hmm. Well. That's a whole different debate that we could possibly yeah. go into, but yeah, we we'll do that some other time. Um, yeah, yeah. So, which I I think is kind of fascinating uh, to do that. I also kind of stuck around for the little uh, interview that they did with the Obamas at the end of the film mm-hmm. uh, as well, and I think I think it was generally very very eye opening. I was very taken by surprise, and I'm very glad that it was the first of the four um, topics that I was uh, mm-hmm. uh, watching from from the four. Um, yeah. just because like it made me a lot more open to what else uh, was on the slate for this particular episode they were doing definitely um, yeah like this is as objective I think as a documentary can get and mm-hmm. it should be respected and, and awarded for it uh, I feel yeah definitely it's, it's, uh, it's one of the best documentaries that came out this year and one of the best documentaries that Netflix has ever produced mm-hmm. um we're we're right we're kind of running down to our final thoughts here. So my final thought on um, American Factory is that I think that the documentarians here mm. um, and their team, what what they did was capture a very well rounded view, uh, like yeah. you said, objective mm-hmm. of what of what happened and what happens that neither demonizes nor glosses mm. over the conflicts. They yeah. they train your cameras are not just the people, but the tasks and materials of the job. So in another respect, it gives audiences less familiar with the factory floor and idea of just how complicated and difficult the work is mm-hmm. and how valuable their skilled labor is as well. Yeah. Um, I think the film tackles the challenges of globalization with much more depth and nuance than most, say, uh, newspaper reporting on the topic. Precisely because it steps back to watch a story unfold over a lengthy period of time Mm -hmm. and it resists easy generalizations on each each culture or each person. Um, It's both soberly instructive and fascinating uh, with regards to the manufacturing sector and where it's going uh, now and where it's going in the near future. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what are your final thoughts on uh, American Factory? Uh, again, like, it's clear, I, I think it's clear as as someone who watches this, you know, like, they don't take a side in the conflict of cultures, right? They don't take a side necessarily. There's no commentary on that mm-hmm. necessarily, but it's very easy as an audience member to walk away questioning, like, your own consumption habits and how yeah. that, like, is is you know, partial to these kind of like factory uh, lives and 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 lifestyles and and livelihoods, right? Um, on that kind of level, these like huge corporations. That are, I I mean, like, do we have an alternative to that at the moment? I don't know, right? But it did make me feel kind of like very conflicted, you know, that there are people just trying to feed their families, right? Um, and like. I wish they didn't have to go through something like that. You know, I, I think especially like when you're looking, when the filmmakers are in China and looking at what's going on in the China side of things, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you hear the stories of these Chinese people, like they just want to feed their kids, right? And that is, you know, risking life and limb and exhaustion to do that is something I personally shouldn't be the case, Right. Uh, but I also am, of course, speaking from like a very privileged position as a middle class like Singaporean, right? Mm, um, yeah, yeah. So like that, like without <clears throat> ever taking a side or a stance or making a necessarily a commentary, like the way that it is captured does illuminate enough in the viewer's mind to think bigger about the industry that we feel as consumers. Um, and and not just like on the individual lives themselves, and I think like that's a huge achievement, 
right? Um, for any kind of like storyteller, much less a storyteller that intentionally went about doing it in a way that didn't try to influence um someone's like judgment or or bias about a particular subject. Mm, definitely, definitely. Um, speaking of the Obamas who uh, produce <laughs> uh, this film, the next film we're talking about, Crip Camp, A uh, Disability Revolution, uh, yep. is its subtitle, is also produced by the Obamas and directed by Nicole Newham and uh, Jim Luckbright. <laughs> it is an eye-opening documentary that focuses on Camp Janet, uh, a summer camp for teens with disabilities. Um, so if like most people out there, myself included, who saw the title Crip Camp, assuming it was about the Crips, it is not. Uh, <laughs> it's about disabled teens. Um, I, I legitimately thought it was about Crips because yeah. I didn't see like a trailer or anything. Yeah. Um, but it, it turns out it's about teens with uh, disabilities and it is heartwarming and insightful. Um, Crip Camp, partly in the beginning, is about the kids who found a home at Camp Janet from mm-hmm. the 1950s to the 1970s, mm-hmm. uh, thanks to its staff of uh, sympathetic yet inexperienced counsellors. Uh, but it's also, in the latter half, um, becomes a galvanizing tale of a national movement sparked mm-hmm. by Janet's former campus yeah. to bring disabled rights into the American mainstream uh, to change legislation uh, to, to, to further help disabled people in America. Um, mm. They refuse to be marginalized and, and this film is an inspiring portrait of you know, people whose dogged persistence um, actually enacted sweeping change mm. in the 1970s uh, in America. Uh, what did you think about Crip Camp? Uh, first of all, if it was a film about like a summer camp for Crips, I, I would yeah. go down to watch that. Um, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. upon realizing like ex- exactly what the subject matter was, honestly, I thought that the title kind of shocked me. I thought the title was very straightforward. Like it could have been named multiple other things, right? It could have been named Cam Janet, um, mm. and so on and so forth. Like Crypto is very forward, right? Yeah. Uh, and then in addition to that, you have the Obama's name, like. I think maybe even more prominently attached to uh, Crip Camp than it was to American Factory. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's it's easy to kind of see how that might necessarily play out, right? Like without, um, you know, actually watching watching the movie itself, you'll be like, okay, the Obamas are attracted to this. It's called Crip Cam. I'm not sure if this is like necessarily going to be like heavily influenced in a particular like direction. Like it feels like clickbait, right? Um, mm-hmm. you know, if you explain it kind of that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but diving into it. Is fascinating. Uh, I think that this is a very kind of clear uh, message about the importance of community in helping individuals find their identity and self-actualize. It is insanely well laid out in terms of the way that they choose to put the stories together from different kind of members uh, uh, um, or what are they called again? The Janadians, right? Um, yep. and, and like the interviews and how they piece the story together of, of how this came about, what it meant to all the other people, like is an incredibly well-crafted journey just from an editing like and, and a screen uh, writing point of view um, mm. that makes it feel extremely human um, and extremely... Um, like, the growth of it feels extremely natural, right? Like, it doesn't start off, like, with a big bang and all of that, um, you know, and it tells very, very personal stories and how that culminates ultimately in, you know, uh, the ADA um, being um, enacted, right, across the United States. Like, that forward momentum and that sweep of just, like, individuals coming together because of, you know... uh their disabilities and like trying to find common ground, trying to find community, trying to find people who understand and that becoming what it it is today is an incredible growth arc that just feels so inspiring. Um, Yeah. All in all, like I I really enjoyed this. I really enjoyed this. And also like just having like old footage, the -hmm. kind of footage that they have is really incredible. Right, like it captures yeah. so many kind of special moments for individuals and groups um, uh, during the camp itself that it's kind of mind-blowing uh, mm. how much of that like they, they managed to find and to keep for this documentary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to your point, I think the amount of material in Crip Camp 
could have easily filled a miniseries rather than a single movie. You know, I agree. Uh, but I think credit to the filmmakers, it never feels like they bit off more than they can chew. Mm-hmm. I think the material is kind of dense by necessity yeah. since prominent figures in the fight for disabled rights um, figure so little into modern pop culture that they have so much to fill their audience in on. Yes. Um, and by focusing on specific individuals and the shared sh- starting ground of Cam Janet, the filmmakers kind of find a concrete thread to follow rather than getting lost in how much history there is to cover. Yeah. And most importantly, they bring a very personal, empathetic touch to the story that makes it feel immediate and relatable, despite the fact that it, you know, taking place 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it feels like a further call to action. Um, you know, um, I, I, I love seeing like, you know, the Janet counselors. They are quite inexperienced. Yeah. Um, one of them um, recalls never having seen a disabled person before working at a camp. Yeah. Uh, and the campers are dealing with some serious issues uh, mm-hmm. ranging from polio to cerebral palsy. Um, and as meager as the camp's resources are, the campers clearly love it because they are free of the social strata that uh, isolates them outside of Camp Janet. Yep. You know, elsewhere, as they explained, they'd be placed in a hierarchy based on how visible their, visibility, uh, their disabilities are. Mm-hmm. And they don't have to worry about being viewed as disabled first and human beings second in Camp Janet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then following that, you know, after the introducing the camp, and the camp counselors, they follow, you know, this uh, this lady, uh, Judy Human, back to the world where she becomes this fierce civil rights advocate. And mostly the, the Crip Camp covers the 1977 uh, San Francisco uh, 504 occupation, where she yep. was a co-organizer as well as the, the passing of uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1990. Um, Human is fighting for things that differently abled people today can largely take for granted. She notes in one scene that she's tired of, you know, feeling thankful for things like accessible toilet stalls when they should be everywhere. It's it's mm. a basic piece of you know um, humanity there. And in another piece of archival footage that highlights just how necessary ADA compliance is, um, yeah. protesters abandon their crutches and wheelchairs to physically drag themselves up the capital steps, uh, which is a great image. And, and through it all, the film points out that the former Janet campers who take part in the fight for equal rights, you know, um, are spurred on by their formative experiences at camp. Mm-hmm. Um, familiar faces crop up throughout, emphas- emphasizing the importance the camp had in creating a base for this kind of collective action. Um, the solid- solidarity amongst them is paramount. And the campers continually reappear, you know, uh, they feel kind of like old friends that kind of disappear, you know, in yeah. the footage from the 70s and then come back <laughs> later. Um, and it's also important that Crip Camp always takes a proactive stance rather than offering its subjects a kind of pity party, you know, yeah. like, you know, it's not just like talking heads of them saying they feel alienated when they're outside of the camp. Mm-hmm. Like the focus is on what the subjects can do instead of what they can't. And when cases of neglect or abuse are addressed, uh, you know, the, the tone taken is frustration with the system that allowed it to happen. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, there's a sense of com- camaraderie throughout the whole film. Yep. You know, the, the stories are told firsthand by, by, the, by the filmmakers and Lebrecht who went to, who went to the camp, um, which, you know, it keeps the stories close and personal. Um, any final thoughts on Crip Camp before, before we move on? Mm, uh I think ultimately, like, why I enjoy Crip Ham so much is because it is a story of hope and, and triumph, right? Uh, and, like, honestly, these days, uh, that feels, like, kind of hard to come by sometimes. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I thoroughly kind of, like, enjoyed that. And I think, like, it definitely, for me personally, reinforced a lot of, like... Um, things to think about, right? About, like, how community can help individuals and how individuals are important for our community and how ultimately I think you're going to need both, right, in order to create some sort of hope um, mm. regardless of how dark your situation might be. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Um, yeah, despite the fact that I, I thought it was a totally different kind of movie. Um, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I mean, my final thoughts also kind of echo that. Like, I mm-hmm. think the focus on individuals throughout this, you know, historical documentary helps Crip Camp from feeling too broad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and given the entire history of the disabled rights movement, it's it's a lot of ground to cover. And yeah. the message that, you know, inclusivity and community can spur real change is important, 
and it doesn't feel like an artifact from yesterday. It's yep. no less urgent today than it was in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the film's slice-of-life tone makes this kind of action feel achievable yeah. rather than something to aspire to. Like, yeah. they actually did it, you know. So you, and since they did it, we can do more and we can do, we can do it again for different issues or this issue put, push further. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, that's why I love Crip Cam. One of the rare, inspiring uh, non-fiction uh, documentaries out there. Absolutely. Uh, next up, we'll move on to the TV shows that Netflix has produced. Uh, we'll begin with uh, Kemp Janet. Uh, sorry, not Kemp Janet, sorry. Lennox Hill. <laughs> yes, Lennox Brief Hill. Fight. We already talked about uh, um, Cam Janet. Let's talk about Lennox Hill right now, man. Um, doctors having difficult jobs, right, is among the points that TV has made um, most forcefully throughout yeah. its medium's existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the genre kind of entered this baroque period of <laughs> like of, of, of medical dramas, you know, like ER and House and Grace Anatomy, you know. But the thing about those shows is how weirdly unrealistic they are. Mm-hmm. Um, there are bombs inside patients in Grey's Anatomy. There are like helicopter crashes in ER and and like Sherlock Holmesian medical mysteries in house, you know. Um, and what's so striking about Lennox Hill, uh, which is Netflix's documentary series, uh, is the way that it shows the excitement and, and stress of the medical professionals and healthcare providers to be kind of utterly quotidian. Um, it's, you know, it's, it, it was released last year. It was released into a world in which our, our understanding of the pressures hospital face, or hospital professionals face has been kind of newly reinforced because of COVID-19, right? Mm-hmm. And it, this one, it depicts a seemingly well-funded, competently staffed hospital, which you know, in the best of times, yep. is still grindingly tough. Mm-hmm. So you can only imagine, you know, hospitals with lower resources. Yep. Um, and it introduces four characters whose unreality TV-ish mm-hmm. aversion to, like, sensationalism mm-hmm. kind of makes their journey all the more fascinating. Yep. Um, the show follows four physicians in particular, um, two neurosurgeons, uh, one ER doctor, and one OBGYN uh, through months of work. Um, the latter two, the ER doc uh, Mirfa Marki and the OBGYN Amanda Little Richardson, are pregnant, mm-hmm. which provides a natural subplot for both. Um, Little Richardson, for instance, is um, a notably good patient, acknowledging and then moving past challenging news yeah. um, throughout her pregnancy. And um, a partner who is, I, I can't put my finger on it, but he is vaguely annoying. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally understand what you mean. I don't know what it is either, but I feel the same way. Yeah, I I don't get it. I just don't like his husband, her husband, for some reason. Yeah. yeah. Um. And and similarly, the stories of the neurosurgeons David Langer and uh, John uh, Bookvar mm-hmm. uh told not through one mega arc, but through kind of carefully selected moments. Yeah. Um. I think Bookvar in particular is a fascinating character that is both you know, um, charming and egotistical in the manner of someone who is so good at his job that he is rarely told no. Mm-hmm. Uh. And when Bookvar is on screen, the show is most itself, you know, yeah. looking at a charismatic and complicated person in a frank probing and unblinking way and, yes. and not creating incidents that is not there. Yeah. Um, you know, uh you know, it's it's great. Um there is also it's it's much more than just doctors doing a job. Lennox Hill subtextually it's also about the it is also like politically it's also about you know it touches upon the Trump presidency here and there like, and, mm-hmm. and which is why I like mm-hmm. how his policies have affected uh, hospital resources and and uh and and black lives and stuff like that. Um, this captures in a very day to day manner the difficulties of healthcare professionals and really instills a lot of respect for them. If you didn't have that already, you should. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what did you think of, uh, after watching about half a season of Lennox Hill? I think that after watching Lennox Hill, every single medical drama that is out there needs to up their game. Mm-hmm. Because here is something that captures all the highs and the lows and it has none of the nonsense that goes on in medical dramas. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and it's kind of crazy to kind of... It, it reminded me a lot of watching um, the first couple of seasons of Grey's Anatomy, right? Without mm. the, the, the... Well, the magical realism, sure, whatever, right? Yeah. Uh, but without all the, all the melodrama, right? Like here is something that's real 
that has the highs and the lows of dealing with humans and their problems and their medical issues and you know like uh, it has to do with like with the progress of science and the frustration of it at the same time like mm-hmm. real life is drama guys like you know this you can't write this you can't write this um, yep. and the way that it's kind of like captured in I think unblinking is the right word right mm-hmm. um, in this kind of unblinking way makes this riveting to watch um, and I, I feel spoiled. I feel spoiled. I feel like after watching Lennox Hill, um, mm. or what I've watched of it so far, I don't know if I can approach like another like proper kind of medical drama ever again, right? Because like this feels visceral and gritty when it's on the floor and it comes to those moments. But when it focuses on the individual doctors um, that we've mentioned, like it is human and it is kind and it is uh, it is the embodiment of what you know the human condition could possibly be within these individuals um and yeah so i i'm i am looking forward to finishing everything i'm looking forward especially to get to the last episode i think um Mm -hmm. maybe for some kind of like catharsis for for the time that we're living living in you know um yeah yeah. uh, but yes incredibly well made uh well shot at the same time, um, it brings, it feels, hmm, what's the best way to go? It pulls this hospital and the people within it, both the doctors and the patients and the nurses, all right, everyone kind of involved that we kind of touched throughout the documentary, mm-hmm. into sharp focus. Um, yeah. And I, that's kind of like the best way I can describe the style of Lennox Hill, right? Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself is incredibly illuminating in both the most wholesome as in wholesome as in all encapsulating uh but also yep. the most hopeful way yes yes um agreed i think what you pointed out is the verity style right like that so many of the great modern filmmakers try to replicate but verity as at its best is in documentary because it is actually real you know yeah and and this verity look into the of a new york hospital the Lennox hills hospital I think offers a glimpse into the day-to-day emotional and physical toll that comes with working in healthcare uh, mm-hmm. in, in a way that is, like you said, visceral yeah. uh, and very immediate and allows you to observe and capture the rhythms of the process in a very natural uh, manner. The quartet of doctors are all really great um, stars, is the wrong word, subjects, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's also great is that they cover a kind of wide spectrum of the American healthcare system. Like this four-person setup allows Lennox Hill to profile a variety of patients. You know, some of them are out of state for specific procedures and others are unsheltered or homeless members from the hospital's surrounding area with urgent care needs. And overall, these patients range from, you know, teenagers to retirees to parents and children. Um, and there is no artificial tour guide. So, you know, there's no like, you know, voice like telling you, um, this is what's happening. La. So Lennox Hill kind of relies on the doctors at the center to fill in any gaps for those not intimately familiar with the inner workings of their various departments. And these subjects are, I mean, they're certainly telegenic and, and mm-hmm. comfortable enough to, to offer context for certain uh, inside baseball hospital practices. Yeah. <laughs> uh, even, under, even under moments of intense psychological duress where I would not be wanting to talk to my friend, let alone a camera crew. Oh, yeah. Uh, and there's not always the chance for setup and debrief after each successive step in a treatment. But uh-huh. I think over, over the course of the series, the information they do offer makes it so that I think each new patient requires less and less of an introductory explanation. Like, you're actually learning about mm. the procedures and the, bu- and the bureaucracy. I mean, they, they don't expect you to learn like medicine in any yeah. episodes, but, but you, you do get a, a feel for the flow and the bureaucracy of the hospital. Uh. Mm-hmm. And, and through each of the four central doctors, they all have you know, their distinct storylines and the, the show it presents them very well, very empathetically. And in letting these developments unfold, they allow the personalities of the people at the center to help guide the atmosphere surrounding them. Uh. Um, you know, there is... An inherent risk and drama every time the neurosurgeons are working on someone's brain, right? But the mood takes its cues from how the people holding the instruments respond to how each new step of the treatment. Um, you know, like for example, little Richardson is coaxing a mother through the delivery process. There's little need to artificially heighten 
well, uh-huh. it's already a, a universally recognizable life-changing event, you know. Yeah. And and that's the thing. Like, uh, it's not like the fictional representations of doctors, which are so like overblown. Mm-hmm. But mundane is so incredibly stressful for oh, them. Oh god, yeah. Like day to day, what they do on what they do on a Tuesday afternoon, you know, you, like you don't have to have like a terrorist like shooting up a hospital. You know? mm-hmm, like that's mm-hmm. not necessary. Like a Tuesday afternoon for them would be for a normal person one of the most stressful days of their lives. Yeah. And it captures that beautifully. And and that's the thing I love most about Lennox Hill. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there was just, I think in one of the, maybe the second episode or maybe in the first episode, there's just yeah. this portion where she's got an appointment for her ultrasound, right? And she doesn't know if she can make it. Yeah. Do that. And she's just like sitting on the couch, like trying to sort out the schedule to see if she can actually make it for her own ultrasound for her own baby. Yeah. And I'm just like, that was anxiety-inducing. Watching her just sit on the couch trying to figure that out, right? Um, yeah, and I think it just highlights like these incredibly poignant moments of humanity in what can be the most stressful, but at the same time, most rewarding and noble professions that we have mm-hmm. um, in in just like such a... Such a yeah, again, sharp focus, right? Uh, and and uh, I'm I'm thoroughly enjoying the four-ish, almost five episodes that I've gone through, yeah. Um, so far, and I highly, highly recommend this. I'm enjoying this as much as one can possibly enjoy something like this. Uh, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And again, like I do feel like I'm learning, and you know us here. Like anytime something entertains us and educates us at the same time, like we're all for it. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Lennox Hill, yeah, it's been a ride, and and yeah, definitely. If you are a fan of any sort of medical drama, I think you should watch Lennox Hill, um, and uh, maybe you'll walk away like feeling a little, uh, a little different from being all the other overblown stuff we've been fed for so many years. Definitely, you know, most of the first season of Lennox Hill was filmed before COVID nineteen. You know, the quote-unquote the best of times. Mm-hmm. It's already that challenging. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when it gets to COVID-19, it becomes even more challenging. So, um, I hope that, you know, like for people out there who, you know, like especially last year when you have, you know, your little um, applauses for doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals out there, I hope that it isn't just like a brief spot of the moment thing. La. You should continue to give your support to these people who so tirelessly help uh, you with no discrimination, you know, the Hippocratic Oath and everything. They do their best for you yep. in very stressful conditions. And yeah, uh, and then Excel is the best depiction of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, uh, the final Netflix show that we'll be talking about an original production is called The Innocence Files. Uh, it details the tireless work of The Innocence Project, which is, if you don't know, it's a non-profit organization with the goal of exonerating wrongfully imprisoned people, people um, you know, primarily through the use of DNA evidence, uh, and they strive for criminal justice reform. Mm-hmm. It is moving, informative, and also infuriating. Yeah. Uh, because this true crime series goes beyond sensationalism and shock to paint a comprehensive portrait of America's justice system's failures. Mm-hmm. You know, from unreliable eyewitness testimonies to police corruption to misapplied science. This is an eye-opening look at how easily innocent people end up in jail. Um, it is shockingly easy. It is, you know, um, one of the best true crime documentaries or crime series ever made, especially on Netflix, because it goes beyond the typically sensational whodunit formula. Yeah. Uh, and in, in, instead chooses to um, paint a broader picture that is no less empathetic. Um, what do you think about uh, the Innocence Files? Uh, how many episodes have you seen again? I am four episodes in to the Sweet. Innocence Files. Yeah, so I've I've got uh, is that half? Yeah, it's almost half. Um, it's about half, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it it's kind of. I think like true crime documentary stuff, like in general, will always be fascinating. Um. To, to a lot of us, right? Just because like this this whole who done it concept is something that is very um, how do we go about saying this? It it appeals to a part of our brain that needs answers, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. needs the needs the truth or needs like kind of like the uncovering for that. Uh, but at the same time, like the entire approach to it, like from the four episodes that I've seen, um, very kind of like meticulous, um chronologically sound 
breakdown of the events that happen and how the cases build up one by one and and, and each kind of like each member kind of gets exonerated from there is completely like fascinating it is riveting to follow along to um, because at no point in time do they ever kind of like jump the gun I think for people who aren't necessarily um familiar with any of these cases right or don't even know what the the instance project is about yeah uh it gives a very good look into um into like the the way in which you know these these well almost all men were um like exonerated um Mm. Almost all men of color too. Yeah, almost all men of color. Uh, 99% yeah. were men, uh, more than like 70% were men of color. Uh, yeah. And in in the Innocence Files, we will see that almost all of them are men of color. Um, yep. So it, it's kind of fascinating, right? And I think it's very easy, like given the name and, and, and its focus, right? It's easy to kind of see the... Oh, it's easy to kind of believe that the focus and the bias will be towards the Innocence Project. Uh, but I do find, mm-hmm. I think it's fairly balanced, right, in terms of, like, the people that they seek out in order to hear, you know, um, yep. their side of the story, um, you have everything from, like, the victims' families to the wrongfully convicted men to, you know, the people in charge of putting um, some of these guys behind bars, the people who are in charge of, like, freeing them uh, or responsible for freeing them. Like, they do talk to a lot of people kind of involved in every case, right? And as it kind of unfolds in this grand, into this grander movement of things, uh, it it's, by the time, like, you are so invested, right? You are so invested in the yeah. fact that it's not clean cut and dry, right? Like, justice in within the justice system is anything but just justice. Uh, and, yeah. you know... Um, all, with all the details that are coming out and all the questions that we answered, like, they don't do the work for you necessarily, mm-hmm. right? Like, you are along for the ride until that discovery is made within the chronological timeline of the story. Um, yeah, so it's it's like, it's it's hard to kind of leave your seat. It's hard to take your eyes off just because mm-hmm. you they established the stakes very early on and then the stakes just grow from there and uh, every yeah. win feels substantial and every mm. kind of like roadblock I won't say lost necessarily but every kind of roadblock feels extremely frustrating because of that as well um, it's just it, very it, solid TV right um, yeah and and on top of that it's a documentary yeah I mean every win like you were saying feels feels bittersweet because yes they have exonerated an innocent man yeah. but how many decades have they spent in prison already yeah and how like, many how many more men and women can they not even like possibly exactly help a- at all? Mm-hmm. Like since its founding in 1992 by um, the attorneys uh, Barry Sheck and Peter Newfield, the, yeah. we have actually uh, worked on 200 cases, nearly 200 cases, in mm-hmm. which a conviction was overturned and an innocent person was set free. Uh, and this particular series it details their work thoroughly and and it covers specific cases and for organizations' larger goals of addressing specific areas uh, areas of abuse and corruption in the justice system. Um, and this first batch of episodes, I hope there's a season two soon. Not hope, like, that would mean that there are more innocent people, but there are more innocent people out there yes, that sure. are wrongfully convicted. You know? mm-hmm. I think it delivers like a very captivating and powerful expose that balances the frustration and outrage alongside the triumph and hope. Um, it's some of the best nonfiction that Netflix has ever done, and... It does so in a very systematic manner. Like mm-hmm. it covers eight cases with yep. episodes divided into sections dealing with the specific areas the justice system of the justice system that the Innocence Project is trying to reform. Yeah. So there is the evidence, uh, that is one aspect. Mm-hmm. Number two, there is the witness, and number three, there is the prosecution. Mm. Um the evidence covers the dubious nature of forensic science. Yeah. Uh, a dangerously crowded field full of bad faith participants making suspicious claims based on subjective research. Uh, and the show specifically focuses on forensic odontology, mm-hmm. which is 
the study of bite marks on victims uh, made famous by the trial of Ted, Ted Bundy. Yep. Um, the witness chunk of it, uh, which I think you haven't gotten to, nope. uh, deals with the seemingly incongruous fact that eyewitness testimony is involved in roughly 75% of wrongful convictions mm-hmm. uh, and that eyewitness accounts are frequently unreliable if yep. not coached or otherwise coerced by the pro- prosecution. Um, you know, it's it's a lot of misconduct going on here and it, the, the show uses a lot of uh, a combination of, you know, interviews and reenactments and archival footage to tell the stories of these eight different cases, which all involve men who were wrongfully imprisoned and later exonerated thanks mm-hmm. to the work of the Edison Project, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think you've already seen the first three cases centered on Lavon Brooks and Kennedy Brewer and um, Keith Howard, yep. who were convicted on bite mark analysis conducted by forensic odontologist uh, Dr. Michael West. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Michael West is angry and defensive <sighs> and combative, and he makes no secret about how he feels about the Innocent Project. Yeah. Um, but we're able to see for ourselves that the field of uh, bite marks of forensic odontology is loosely defined at best. There's no real training for it, and much like other areas of forensic science, such as handwriting analysis, um, the determinations are highly subjective. You know, and in an internally conducted study amongst forensic odontologists, which the participants were given photographs of wounds and asked to identify whether they were definitely a human bite, mm-hmm. possibly a human bite, or not a human bite. They were unable to unanimously agree on a single one. That is, nobody in the field, the entire field, the top experts could agree on what a human bite looked like. That is how unreliable this particular quote-unquote science is. Yeah. You know, I could spend like the next hour talking about Dr. Michael West. Yeah. He's a celebrity in odontology, so in love with his own fame and hates the very idea of the Innocence Project. But you know, he's such a big part of the of the initial part of the Innocence Files. So what do you think about you know the focus on him? Oh man, what a character! What a character! Yeah, uh, yeah he should keep his mouth shut a lot yeah. more than he does. Um, you know, but again, he's in love with 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 his his calling, right? Uh, he's in love with this idea that he's some kind of uh, godsend to the field of forensic science mm-hmm. and uh, feels absolutely no remorse um, that his science yeah. um, has put innocent men behind bars for decades. So Yeah, many times. Yeah, multiple times, many times. And like every time, you know, um, he's asked about it, like he just gets more and more incensed. Uh, I, I like the fact that the filmmakers don't make any sort of like judgment on that necessarily. You form your own judgment just from watching this man be himself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and, and I, I love it. He, he, he goes, I'm, I'm not racist. And then he goes on to <laughs> yeah. quote the fucking... Uh, the fucking slogan of the Confederate, uh, the Confederacy, right? Like, oh my god! Yeah, I'm just like, dude. One of the, one of the best like comedic moments, unintentionally comedic moments of the series. Yeah. Um, it was like obviously horrific, like what he said, but yeah. it was also like really funny at the same time. It's one of those things that you know John Stewart would like to you know pull up one of these days. Yeah. Um, and and the shocking part is like one of the most important revelations of the Innocence Files is. You, you've only just been introduced to Dr. West, right? Mm-hmm. But later on, there are so many people in the criminal justice system that are just like Dr. West, yep. or perhaps even, perhaps even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, we are presented with police officers who intimidate witnesses into giving false testimonies. Um, there are prosecutors who suppress exculpatory evidence, and mm-hmm. there are grand juries loaded with personal friends and colleagues of the prosecution. And when faced with irrefutable evidence that they've put an innocent man in prison, most of the subjects have been incarcerated for over two decades, as I mentioned. They, at best, you know, this is the best case scenario, they take no responsibility. At worst case scenario, they are wholly unrepentant Mm -hmm. and refuse to acknowledge the person's innocence. Uh, And what's worse, not a single one of these criminally reckless officials are held accountable at the end of the day, you know. Mm Um, there is one prosecutor who suppressed multiple pieces of evidence, including nearly half a dozen sources of testable DNA, has now become a judge. The rest of the prosecutors and officers are either still working or comfortably retired or passed away with zero chance of any meaningful punishment for their, for their grossly criminal abuses and misdeeds. It's infuriating, but 
I think it's a feeling that everyone in America or in truth, most justice systems, because it's imperfect and created by people, mm-hmm. uh, in any country, they need to experience because if we're ever going to see extreme reform in a justice system that so glaringly needs it, yep. like you need that anger and you need that clarity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts on the Innocence Files? Oh, man. Uh, I, I'm kind of torn at the moment whether or not I, I want to finish Innocence Files first or I want to finish Linux Hills first. Mm. Just because, like, one one is so... Uh, like, it's heart-rending in, in not a great way, right? Like, I watched Innocence Files and I'm just, I'm just so angry yep. from that, you know? And on the other hand, like, Linux Hills also does make me, like, uh, it does elicit emotions, but it's not the, the same kind of like fury that that kind of goes from there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so you know, both I, I think all four of the, the topics that we were talking about today, like it really does a, a fantastic job of examining like the human condition under under different circumstances and how you as an audience like relate to that is very telling uh, of of where you are at. You know, just kind of in your life and in relation to the topics at hand. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and Innocence Files in particular, I, I just don't know. Like, while I was watching this, I was asking, like, what what would a world look like where, like, justice is truly, like, fair and, and method out in a way that is, is real and true, right? And then I thought yep. about the fact that, you know, oh, man, what's the name of that movie with your sentient crime... Uh, minority report. Minority report. The minority report exists as a perfect example that even in a system like that, it doesn't work, um, because yep. of the actors involved, right? Like that is it's the fault of humans, lah. It's the fault of humankind, right? And we will, mm-hmm. you know, unless enough people are willing to to take up that mantle and 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 do the work that's necessary to make sure that injust- there's no injustices in justice, the justice system, mm-hmm. right? Like, it will always be like that, regardless of the how far science and technology assists in the forensic department. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, these are the four things that we wanted to, you know, um, showcase to you. Lah. I mean, in particular, I think the Innocence Files... Uh, it's one of my favorites of the four because mm. it's the first true crime docu-series I've seen on Netflix. Yeah. One of the few, very few true crime docu-series on Netflix that doesn't feel exploitative yep. or sens- sensationalized in, uh, in any way. Yes. You know, like, rather than reveling in the gruesome details of a specific crime or mm-hmm. glorifying a serial killer, looking at new Netflix, you have, like, 800 different, like, shows... Oh, yeah like glorifying or sensationalizing serial killers, you know. This one is actually focused on the victims. Both the victims of the initial crimes and the victims of the abuse and corruption rampant in the American justice system that values securing a conviction over doing actual justice. Mm-hmm. Because it is a, it is a double... It, it's a double penalty. The, not only do the wrongly incarcerated person is a victim, but the victim of the actual crime also doesn't get justice because, you know, the real perpetrator is still out there. Yep. Um, I think it will likely be a shocking eye-opener for many viewers, but it is a vitally important watch and yep. both heartbreaking and hopeful. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that wraps it up for our four uh, TV shows and movies that are covering Netflix nonfiction, although there mm-hmm. is a lot more good out there. Yep. Um, is there any, like, Netflix nonfiction that, you know, that isn't spotlighted here but you would like to mention that you, that you really like on Netflix? Ooh. Um, again, like I said, I took a long, long break. I think the last thing that I barely made through like 10 minutes of was conspiracy, And I'm just like, you know what? I don't know. Yeah, if I'm like, if it's on Netflix and unless someone tells me otherwise, I'm not going to venture to watch something nonfiction on Netflix um, necessarily. So I don't have anything in recent memory to highlight at the moment. Sure. Like, although, I mean, you do watch a lot of, like, food shows, right? So that, that counts as uh, non-fiction too. That is true. That is true. Uh, what was the most recent food show that I watched? I hmm. I think, like, Ugly Delicious is really good. Yeah. Uh, salt, Fat, Acid, Heat is really oh, good as yes. well. Yeah, yeah. We should, yeah. We've never covered food shows, have we? No, no. Hmm. Okay. Okay. That might be an idea for something. Yeah, I, I could go on and on about... um. Uh, about ugly, delicious, and and uh, salt acid food, um, salt acid, heat, heat. fat, 
Fat. Fat. So fat acid heat. Like <laughs> one of those orders. In one of those orders, yeah. I I, yeah. I love that show. It is very, really amazing. Um yeah. yeah, so like that, Chef Table. Um I, I don't know if Chef Table feels as impactful as it used to be. Mm. Um just because not so much that they're running out of stories or, or kind of personalities. Um, but like it's a very at this point in time, like almost five seasons in, is a very tried and true formula that they're continuing to use. So there's nothing kind of new to that and fresh yep. to that unless like you're bringing someone who's like truly a personality or has a fascinating story to the to kind of the forefront with that. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, um, Tokyo Food Diaries, I think um, sure. probably one of the more recent ones that I really, really enjoyed. We should totally um, do a food episode. How about you? Absol- absolutely. Uh, Netflix is also quite famous for their sports documentaries. Of course, their most famous one is the Michael Jordan... Um, <laughs> last Dance. Uh, the Last Dance, mm-hmm. which is... I'm not going to lie. It's very entertaining and it's very compelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it is also clearly a propaganda piece. Oh, uh, yeah. Which has been disputed by many of his teammates, mm-hmm. uh, But okay, you know, whatever that is, like, It's it was a fun documentary, la. Like let's yeah. put it that. But if you wanted like alternative sports documentaries that are a bit more objective, mm-hmm. um, perhaps you can watch uh, Last Chance You, uh, and it's spin off Last Chance You Basketball, which covers uh NCAA athletics in in colleges in America. Oh, uh, yeah. and we've we've already talked about uh, Cheer uh, yes. on one of the early episodes on of uh, Behold. Actually, yes, I really enjoyed it. Uh, Chill was really good. Plus, I think, uh, what else should I mention? Oh, Thirteenth. If you wanna, if you wanna documentary by Ava DuVernay, uh, more about the American prison system. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, if, uh, you know, it presents, it, it gives you the receipts. If, if you know, if, you're, <laughs> if 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 people are trying to tell you that the American justice system is not racist, just uh, look look at the stats. Just, yeah. Just look, just look at the stats. So, like where the criminals, the quote unquote incarcerated people, are coming from. Um, they are usually from uh, they are usually people of color and from you know um, lower income areas. Yeah, uh, it's very sad. Um, yeah, th- there's a lot of good stuff out here right now. Like, like if you if you're a bit sick of like you know the fire fest documentaries or <sighs> the like twenty eight uh, you know shows about evil geniuses and the Ted Bundy tapes and stuff like that. There's a lot of there's a lot of better stuff out there. And and these yeah. are just four of them. Yeah. yeah um, oh yeah. Uh, last shout out to uh, Boxes Explained, which is also really good. Mm-hmm. I really like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you want something lighthearted to watch after all these heavy shit, mm-hmm. um, I recommend Speed Cubers because it is very fast. It's um, it's a it's a film that's only forty five minutes long. Yeah. Uh, and it delves into the world of uh, competitive Rubik's cube solving. Yeah, I watched uh, that with my nephew who who recently decided to that he wants a Rubik's cube. So. Yeah. It's incredible. It's 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 also a real good tale of a mentor mentee relationship where mm-hmm. the mentee you know um uh overcomes or, or the, the student has become the teacher. He overcomes like his his idol right yeah. in the Rubik's cube um, <laughs> world and then becomes the new star. Yeah. And and the and the old guy is you know quite gracious about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It, it's a very nice heartwarming story. So I also recommend the Speed Cubers. Uh, we will be back. In a couple of weeks, I think for genre equality, uh, forty eight. Yes, uh, that's right. What What are you most excited about to talk about uh, on genre equality? Uh, I I think we'll have a pretty interesting discussion about Eternals, right? Um, mm. we both love Chloe Chow. Yeah, I'm not sure if we both love Eternals necessarily, and I think there's something to be said about like Marvel's success and their model and whether or not. You know, there is there is place for inventive storytelling outside of that. Mm. Um, for that, um, yeah, I'm not. I don't know how Cowboy Bebop is going to turn out. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, hopefully, okay. it's not too damning. But um, you're enjoying Arcane on Netflix, though. I'm if loving. Books, yeah, yeah, I'm loving Arcane at the moment. I think, um, as far as kind of like Netflix animation for the year, it might be the top thing that they put out this year. Easily, I'm very happy that they've announced a second season. Um. Yeah, I just didn't. You know, not not a big League of Legends guy. Uh, not big into the law or anything of the sort. But I'm extremely impressed. But we will go into a discussion about whether or not cell shading is really the way to go forward for animation. Um, sure. Yeah, for that. Um. Also, I'll be talking. Uh, doing anime corner this time round. So we're in our fall okay. season. Um. Again, like we've had like a major kind of year for anime, especially for spring. Um. Mm. Summer was. Uh, 
Some was okay, right? Yeah. Uh, but I do think Fall has some highlights that I would really kind of like to pick out. Um, some very stunning, like a uh, stunning, like technical anime, just in terms of like the artwork and and the technical expertise that it takes to kind of do that. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and some like very fancy, whimsical ones that you know I'm a big sucker for. Uh, and some just like plain like visual spectacles that are pretty cool. So I'm uh, looking forward to talk about that as well. Um, sure. Yeah. How about you? Anything like in particular that you want to highlight for our people um, for our next episode? There is quite a recurring theme in my thoughts on genre equality for the past, I would say, two years. Mm-hmm. Is that I've been consistently, routinely disappointed by franchise blockbusters mm. uh, and in this particular case with the Eternals mm. with Ghostbusters Afterlife mm-hmm. with um, My Hero Academia World Heroes Mission mm-hmm. and with Cowboy Bebop mm-hmm. um, I do have to say that I'm really disliking the the Hollywoodization of like great properties that I've loved yeah. uh, on the flip side I would also like to you know spotlight a lot of the great film fest stuff la. I mean <laughs> not all not all the stuff that showed up on film fest are good some of them are mediocre some of them are good some of them are very good la. but I will, yep. we will be talking about Titan Saloom Bell um, Lamb mm-hmm. um, Last Night in Soho which actually I have similar thoughts with Eternals in that it is half a good movie yeah. uh, and you know plus other stuff as well uh, um, including you know Big Mouth Season 5 recently came out mm-hmm. and Kanto which is Disney's new um, animated property uh, soundtrack and scored by Lin-Manuel Miranda so the music was good the film was okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, and lots of... Oh, I'm really excited to talk about Hellbound, which is Netflix's oh, new yeah. uh, South, oh, yeah. South I, I just yeah. I just just started. So, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty excited. Hopefully, I, I'll be able to like hop in on that discussion as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, yep. Uh, so, you can tune in in a couple of weeks' time uh, for Journal Equality 48. Uh, till next time, guys. This is it, Zero. I'm Isa. Bye-bye. Ciao.